Welcome to What Comes Next, a podcast about not having all the answers and that being a good thing. I'm your host, Eric, and today's kind of a, today's episode is a, a little odd for me. I mean, I'm not really, I've not really set a, uh, a standard or any typical practice yet, but <clears throat> today I'm calling this episode 2.1. You know, we're going to revise episode 2. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because I wasn't satisfied with the quality of the last podcast of episode two. So I decided to record this version and share it as a more coherent offering. I want to start off with something though. Uh, the more I move through this process of deconstruction, uh, and for me, I call it remodeling. Uh, the more I undo this idea of uncertainty, the more comfortable I become in my inadequacy. But for me, this is an invitation to, as Marty Solomon puts it, trust the story. There's a lot I don't know, as you'll discover. <laughs> I'm not always the most eloquent, the most polished, or refined. I am, however, passionate, willing to learn and dedicated to growing intellectually and spiritually. You'll also find that I'm quick to sincerely apologize. And so for the incongruency and the disjointedness in the last episode, and even in episode one about the Bible, um, I, I do want to apologize for that. I have found that um, writing out more of a script is really going to be beneficial. So today I want to cover my understanding of deconstructing faith, or at least how I am moving through this process. Today I'm going to talk about what destruction is not, what destruction is, why deconstruct, and some resources. What deconstruction is not. It is not as sexy as some people on social media and in pulpits might tell you. It's not easy. Deconstruction is involuntary. It comes with hurt and nagging and groaning. And for most I've met, it's not a reason to sin without guilt. Deconstructing faith is not a willful attempt to walk away from Jesus, but for many a desperate endeavor to follow him more authentically. It is not what most evangelicals make it out to be. This not being an easy process makes it scary. It makes it, it brings about a level of vulnerability that you're not expecting because it impacts so much of our lives. When you begin to deconstruct, you may end up leaving your church that you could have been at for years. Family members, friends, Social gatherings all dry up and fade away. So at the heart of it, deconstruction is not the willful walking away for the sake of sinning more. Now what deconstruction is, deconstruction is the process of unpacking, examining, and rethinking a person's belief systems. This sometimes results in no longer believing what you once did or could result in, an, in a stronger faith altogether. It is delicate yet messy, emotional, vulnerable. It is a time where folks really decompartmentalize what they believe. And so deconstruction is this process of, of decompartmentalizing decompartmentalizing everything within your life that religion may has may have may have touched it is lonely sometimes there's a lot of reading and studying and examining and it is a it's a horrific yet beautiful process Now, why do folks deconstruct? We've packed church, faith, Jesus, 
and God into pretty little boxes based on what someone tells us. And it has impacted far more of our lives than we realize. These pretty little boxes have have touched and, and, and affected how we interact with others, how we vote, how we raise our kids, how we treat our planet, how we do business, how we govern. And our interactions aren't limited to those we like. It's how we engage people who are racially different than us, ethnically different than us, culturally different than us. different gender identities, different sexual orientations. It even impacts how we treat others who believe differently than we do. Many, if not all of us, deconstructing, were taught the Bible bears the burden of being both science and history textbook where rules, laws, and commands are largely ignored until such time as to condemn someone. Rachel Held Evans puts it in one of her books that Christians like to talk about women who can't be preachers in one book of the Bible, but yet don't address women wearing head coverings in another writing from the same author, Paul. There'll be arguments and discussions on, you know, gay people, people within the LGBTQ plus community, and how their sin is an abomination because it's a sexual sin, but yet quickly dismiss and disregard the teachings on divorce and what that looks like. We have been taught that literal interpretations of these ancient, ambiguous, and diverse texts, as Peter Enns puts it, they've led to great harm in the form of anti-Semitism, racism, slavery, misogyny, dehumanization, colonialism, or colonization, and a divisive spirit between itself, Christianity, and the world. Deconstruction's impact is felt all over our lives because religion has. Now, I want to share with you a thread that I really resonated with. And this is by a gentleman um, on Twitter named Zach W. Lambert. And Zach is a really phenomenal guy. He, he's a pastor of a church down in Austin. Um, the church is called Restore Church. Rest- you can find them on Twitter at RestoreATX. But Zach's thread here, it starts off with people aren't deconstructing because it's sexy or because they're looking for excuses to, excuses to sin. They're doing it because the, Christ- because the Christians they've in- encountered and the Christianity they've been handed are so unlike Christ. He continues with, I've talked to hundreds of people about this and never met a single person who chose to start deconstructing, himself included. Deconstruction is involuntary. It happens when something we've been told to become, uh, told to believe comes in conflict with something we experience. For example, we were told Christians value ethics and morals but then watch them give full-throated support to Donald Trump. We were told Christians welcome everyone in God's family, but then we saw LGBTQ plus folks diligently following Jesus be kicked out of the church. We were told Christians fight against abuse, but then we watched church leaders at the highest level cover up abuse and ensure abusers or enable abusers time and time again. We were told Christians are called to be generous, but then we saw pastor after pastor get caught embezzling money. 
We were told Christians believe everyone bears the image of God, but then we historically marginalized, but then we saw historically marginalized groups being further oppressed in the church. We were told Christians hate racism, but then watched them post all lives matter after George Floyd's murder. We were told Christians abhor violence, but then read polls showing they support war and torture at higher rates than any other group. We were told Christians strive for peace, but then we watched an insurrection led by people carrying signs bearing the name of Jesus. We were told Christians care for the vulnerable, but then we heard pastors teach that people experiencing homelessness are just lazy addicts. We were told Christians take care of the sick, but then watched prominent pastors call COVID fake news and host super spreader events. After seeing all of that and much more, we were left with two options, blind loyalty to a broken and oppressive system or deconstruction. Thank God so many folks have stopped pretending nothing is wrong. Thank God they refuse to enable these abuses any longer. Zach goes on to say, My hope going forward is threefold. More and more folks will break free from toxic religion by deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. Pastors will stop shaming deconstructors and start supporting them instead. Abusive churches and leaders will come to justice. He has another tweet within this that that includes a video, so what I'll do is I'll include that link in my show notes. But that really hit me. Because that touches on a lot of what people are facing when they begin deconstructing. You begin wrestling with ideas that Scripture says that the truth shall set us free. But we watch so many people trapped by legality and laws of evangelical fundamentalism. Or really just the evangelical church in general. We ask things of of the Bible that it was never meant to bear or never meant to provide. So here's a little bit of my story. I didn't really grow up in church. My grandma took me a few times here and there. And then um, in the summer of 1990, when we moved to a new town, we began going to a church, a, a Southern Baptist church in a small town called Fuquay. And we went there. And I, I went there pretty regularly from 1990 to about uh, until February of 1997. Now, I accepted Christ between uh, fourth and fifth, the summer between fourth and fifth grade. And when I came back to school to talk about what I did that summer, well, we were poor. We couldn't afford to go on vacation or even have nice clothes. But one thing I was really, really proud of was accepting Jesus. And that was met with laughter and ridicule. And some of the same people who were in that class were in the youth group I was a part of, or the children's ministry. It was silly to talk about Jesus in public as a kid. And I didn't know that. See, I was one of these really naive kids that when I began to learn about U.S. history and the Constitution... And when it said all men were created equal, I, I, did, I never imagined it was only white men. Much to the broken-hearted surprise of a young, a young Eric, that was not the case. And so I was naive, and I, I, I thought that, you know, I believed everything that that Southern Baptist Church was teaching me. Until I began to rebel. Until I began to want to live a life that I wanted to live. And so in February of 97, life radically changed. Uh, I think I set foot in that church two more times after that. 
before never going back. What I did do was I stayed connected with a parachurch organization called Youth for Christ and Campus Life, and, and the leaders of the local groups I was a part of, both the one in the town I lived in and another one a couple towns over, that is probably the reason I'm still alive. So if you ever hear this, Eddie and Julie Wetmore, David and Martha Hyman, and Dave Kittrell, thank you, thank you, thank you for your prayers, for your support, for your love. You truly exemplified Jesus in my life at that time. So thank you. But fast forward to about... Uh, early 2000s, and I'm, I don't have much involvement with the church outside of occasionally listening to POD. Um, and <laughs> I remember walking through a mall, and this, this does have relevance, I promise. I remember walking through a mall that no longer exists and wanting to talk to this girl I'd seen. So... I kind of followed her. Creepy, I know. I, that's not the case. I, I don't do that any uh, any longer, unless it's my wife and I'm just trying to be silly. And and so I, I, I followed this girl into a Christian bookstore, and she then proceeds to hug someone who feels like he's two feet taller than me and two feet wider than me. And uh, so I quickly turn as if I was coming to the store on my own, of my own accord, and uh, had my own plans to be there. And and so I gave a simple smile and nod and walked past them to go down an aisle. And I see this book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. So I grab that book and I check out, sticking my book back. And, and like this book almost literally... Or it feels like it flies off the shelf at me. So I buy it, put it in my book bag, and I, I leave. I don't know how, I don't remember how long that book stayed in my book bag. But I remember being in my apartment that I shared with a, with a cousin and sitting on my floor in my bedroom eating imitation crab meat and melted butter for dinner after working about a 16-hour day. Dirty, hot, tired... And I'm sitting on my floor, and I pull my book bag off my bed, and the, that book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, and a King James Bible that one of my grandmothers had given me, falls out. So, I begin reading. And after reading A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God, with the help of a dictionary, I, um, I accepted Christ. Like, I really accepted Christ. Like... I wanted to follow him to the ends of the earth. And it's led me to some pretty wild places with some really amazing conversations. And so in 2000, um, I accept Christ and I don't know what to do. I just know that, hey, there was a huge impact on my life by people who were there for me in my teenage years. I want to do something like that. And so I began trying to find a place to do that. And so I went to a Living in the town I was in at the time, Cary, North Carolina, uh, I, I went to a church called White Plains Methodist, and they're a United Methodist church, and uh, they were having a they were having a pumpkin patch. This is October, and so they were doing a, a pumpkin patch, and uh, I walk up, I speak to this young this, this uh, middle schooler at the time, and I say, "Hey, uh, I'd like to talk to you, youth pastor," and so I go and I talk to him. And he is very polite, very kind, and says, uh, to the complete stranger that I was, says, no, we're not really looking for volunteers to work with the youth group. I laugh now because I see how absurd that was for me to do that. But uh, he did tell me about a college ministry. There was a college age Sunday school group, and he thought I'd be, uh, he thought I might enjoy that. So he gives me a, so I walk out front, speak to the same middle school 
girl that I, I had previously spoken to, and she gave me her sister's number, the number to their house, and said that her sister led the college age group and to call her. And that's a story for another day because that young, that middle schooler ends up becoming my sister-in-law because the person I end up calling, Diana, fast forward a few years, becomes my wife. So that worked out fantastic. I'm loving that story. But we go on. So I go on. And, and so I, I still want to volunteer with youth. And, and I find this guy, Jason. And um, I've met him a couple times before. But so I, I, I get with Jason. And he says, uh, yeah, I'll take you on as a volunteer. There's a two-year commitment. And we're working with youth. So you're 19, 20 years old. If you do anything with the youth that you're not supposed to do, I'll take things from you that you don't want to lose. And he was serious. So... I start working with Jason, and I don't really have any formal training. Um, I just am watching. I am. He is leading by example, and we're going through books of the Bible, and I'm reading scripture. I'm reading books, and it's all from an evangelical pr- perspective. Um, and I had this approach to scripture that wasn't necessarily evangelical. And it wasn't, as I come would come to learn, mainline. It was kind of this weird mix of the two. And so um, I didn't really fit in anywhere. Well, fast forward, I joined the military, go off. The wife, um, we get married while I'm in, uh, I'm in the Navy. She moves up to Virginia with me. We end up going to a church in a little sleepy town called Franklin Congregational Christian Church in Franklin, Virginia. And that was a very traditional church that I was not used to because the church I was volunteering at was a non-denominational. Well, it acted as, it seemed like a non-denominational, but it was loosely tied to the Southern Baptist Convention. But it was contemporary worship, and you know the pastor didn't necessarily wear a suit, and they built a this stage, and there was you know production and lighting. Anyway, but Frank, Franklin was very different almost liturgical and they used hymns and there's one sad little soundboard in the back and there was probably five people there six maybe including my family that that first Sunday that we went and I told my wife to find a church that she would be comfortable at because I was going to be gone a lot with the Navy and so she found that church and and so we began to 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 attend and then we she and I both had a heart for youth, and so we began working with youth, and we were the youngest married couple there by a couple decades. And so we brought liveliness and energy back into this church. And And I remember having this, that so that, that idea of a parachurch organization and really buying, in, buying into this idea of being one, you know, we are all one in the body. And so I wanted to start a parachurch kind of organization there in that town. And I remember the pastor telling me that he did not want to do that because he didn't want the other bigger churches in town accusing us of trying to steal their members. And I got so angry at that. I got so angry at that because there are there were kids not going to church that we could, you know, tell about Jesus. We had a chance to to minister to a community as a whole, as a group of believing churches, to meet the the spiritual and physical needs of people in the community. And we had that opportunity, and, and they didn't want to take it. And that made me so angry. And I began to disconnect from that church. And then we, you know, we moved back to North Carolina, and and so, and I dive back into a traditional, more contemporary evangelical style. Well, for a long time, I had felt a call to pastor and preach, and again, never went to, you know, I've I've not been to seminary, I've not been to any, you know, divinity programs. The depth of my understanding, and and anything that I know. And any wisdom that I have is gained from 
reading and talking and wrestling and arguing and lamenting and and just years of study and trying to put into practice what I'm reading. But for but even back then, even back before, you know, I was ordained. I remember thinking is this the most authentic style of Christianity that exists? The church I'm in now is a non is truly a non-denominational church. We are not a church plant, we're a church startup. We just celebrated 15 years. And and at the start of it, we were leaving a church that felt stagnant. And so here's here's how my typical Sunday looked. I would leave my town my house in in a little town called Willow Springs, and we would drive no less than forty minutes one way to a church in Apex. I would drop my kids off at children's church. Me and the youth pastor at the time would drive another twenty minutes up the road to go to church to be fed spiritually to go to a whole different church to then come back and do youth group with the the kids at the church we were at. And that was exhausting. And there was conflict within me and turmoil, and I didn't understand it. And so um, I began looking to online churches. A pastor that I won't mention by name, but I'll give you some context clues. He was really big in Washington, and uh, he uh, would later go get into some scandal issues and and have to leave Washington, and that whole church network got shut down. And he would relocate to Arizona, and what looked like the potential to grow and that he had grown and changed. It seems like he's double downed on what he's doing. Well, prior to, he came at a time when I was really needing to fill a void because Rob Bell had left, you know, his church of Mars Hill in Michigan, I believe, um, and was, you know, kind of, on the path of where he is today in this very universalist idea and and all of evangelical all of the evangelical world was screaming that he's a heretic he never truly believed in Jesus and and really felt that you know Rob had gone off the deep end and so resources and and I really loved his content his numa stuff I thought was fantastic it resonated with youth. It was easy to share and teach. It was trendy, and it was relevant. and can, oh, It was great stuff. Don't hate me because I said that, because I still go back and will watch those videos every now and then. I really feel like they have a fantastic, they have fantastic content within them. But Rob talking about rabbis... And he, he mentioned a book, Every Man's Talmud. Um, and, and, and so <laughs> Rob began this curiosity and this interest and desire within me about learning scripture, learning more about Judaism. Not to convert, but to understand the Old Testament, to understand the original foundational roots of Christianity. And I got pushback from others. And I would tell others about stuff that I was excited about. And that, well, why are you doing that? We teach Old Testament stuff at this church. Why are you doing that? Or there's other churches that you can go to. Why go to a synagogue? And I got discouraged and embarrassed. And so I stopped. But that, that desire, that nagging that I was missing out on something, you know, that whole FOMO, the fear of missing out. Well, this became a nagging and a groaning that I would have to ignore. And that ignoring it caused me to double down. I mean, really double down on the teachings within evangelicalism. 
dispensationalism, complementarianism, you know, six six literal days of creation. And it became impossible to defend. And it became exhausting. And it got to a point where I really, like going to church became a chore. I would sing on Sunday mornings with the worship team and I just wouldn't feel it. What once would move me to tears now was just, I'd have to fight yawns because I was bored with it. And pulpit after pulpit was talking about how conservatism is what is going to save the American Christian church. And there was more talking of politics than Jesus for me. And there's a whole lot of white dudes up in my theology that I just didn't care anything for and and really needed a different perspective because it couldn't... The, Jesus wasn't white. So this idea of an American straight white Jesus was... It, it infuriated me. I would see pictures and, and artist renditions, and I'm like, why does Jesus have blue eyes? Why is Jesus white? His clothes are way too clean to be living in the desert. And this is where my deconstruction journey ends, because I didn't know really what the definition of deconstruction was up until a couple of years ago. Like, I hadn't heard that term deconstruction. For me, it hearing the term originally brought up the idea of, like, housing construction and projects and demolition. And that's exactly what deconstruction ends up being. It's a demolition. It's, it's completely ripping apart everything. I began to really get this nagging sense that American evangelicalism at its heart is about the preservation of white people in the name of Jesus. That's really what it started to feel like for me. And I find myself saying, damn it, white people, way too much to be a part of of anything that promotes whiteness. Because most of the time, white people annoy the crap out of me. And that sounds weird because I am one. And as and as I began thinking about it, you know, this whole being, why am I so annoyed with white people in my in faith? I began to dig deeper within myself. I began this process of internal reflection and remembered that one of the things that caused me to stop really following that pastor from Washington, now Arizona, was. My youngest kid at the time, she was talking about wanting to preach. And I'd heard for years that women couldn't be preachers. And so I started looking into it. And then I realized it wasn't Jesus that was saying that women couldn't be preachers. It was Paul. And I asked myself a question. Who's more important, Jesus or Paul? Well, the answer is obviously Jesus. And if it's not, you might want to listen to a little bit more of this podcast about deconstruction. Anyway, so thinking, you know, prioritizing, okay, Jesus is above Paul. Well, where do I see Jesus equipping, edifying and supporting women to carry the good news of the gospel. Well, I see it when Mary is at Jesus' feet and Martha is running around the house taking care of playing hostess and everything, and and Jesus tells Martha that Mary is exactly where she needs to be. And the women at the tomb running into town to tell the apostles of the risen Jesus... Or even the Samaritan woman at the well running into town when she was there at a time of day when no one else was to to go into town for the people that she avoided to tell them about Jesus and to bring him back, to bring them to him. 
And looking at those three, I thought, now, who's more, or those three stories, and I thought, what a beautiful thing that my daughter wants to tell people about her favorite passage of Scripture and how it impacts her. And who would be supportive of that? Jesus or the other guy? And once again, I chose Jesus. And I stopped listening to that guy because if he was willing to tell, if he was willing to, to say that my daughter couldn't have a voice, then what else are mega churches telling people? And so that's why I shared Zach's thread from Twitter because I began seeing the diminishment of black and indigenous people of color. I began seeing a, a, a negating of Scripture when it comes to the personhood of people who aren't straight in their sexuality. I began to see a dehumanization and a demonizing of people who identify, identify who identify other than their biology. And so this, this statement in my head started to resound, this idea that different doesn't equal wrong. And so it began a process that I didn't realize at the time was deconstruction. But I began desperately searching for things that felt more like Jesus. This caused me to to really begin to study rabbinic tradition and teachings. This began reading authors who I was told to never read. I, I remember being told not to read Peter Enns or even Rob Bell. I remember being told not to read or listen to all kinds of pastors because they're teaching something other than American evangelicalism. But it wasn't put that way. It was put as, don't listen to these people, these pastors, these women, whomever, because they're teaching something other than what we're teaching. And that was the heart of it. These, they were teaching a different perspective than what the churches I was involved in were teaching. And for years, for years, I had held this perspective that the best way to ruin a good story is to get the other side. So I wanted the other side. I wanted to know why all of these people seemed scared. Why were they scared if we listened to another voice? Would they see that, or would they, did they believe that we would realize the indoctrination, the fear, the hurtfulness? Would we wake up and go, that's not okay? Would we rally, would we rally against the subversive nature of proselytizing instead of caring for our community? Matthew 28 tells us, you know, it's often recorded as the Great Commission, but it's, it's the Bible doesn't even record it that way. We are told that in our goings, as you're going, didoxo and baptizo, I probably mispronounced those, but to preach and to teach and to baptize. But that's in our goings. That's the assumption that we're already in the process of living lives within our communities that we are safe enough and that people feel safe enough to ask us about Jesus. Yeah, absolutely share the gospel, but not at the expense of what could be a really great moment for you to minister to somebody, for you to love somebody, for you just have a friend. And so things that began to stick out for me was the constant drilling of telling everybody about Jesus all the time. All Jesus everywhere. And yeah, Jesus is phenomenal.
what? Jesus doesn't call us to make everything all about him. Jesus calls us, even if we look at the three commandments he gave, love God with everything that we have, to love our neighbor better than ourselves. And I'd like to add that if you don't love yourself very much, you need to love your neighbor better than you love yourself. And the third being to treat others how we want to be treated. That is where we need to start. And, and I don't see the American Evangelical Church doing that in the spirit of Jesus. I see them doing that in the spirit of, let me tell you about Jesus, and if you don't accept the Jesus I'm telling you about, you're going, let, me, let me then condemn you to hell. And so within my process, that I'm, I'm still in actually, coming to grips in terms with non-white perspectives, that is challenging, but it is amazing. And so for me, this, this process of deconstruction has helped me to feel so much closer to God than I have ever felt. And so I want to share with you some of those resources. I'm going to put links to all of these people in the show notes. But I want to give a huge shout out to the folks who have answered questions who have uh, pointed to other folks who have been hugely helpful during this season and time for me. So I'm going to start off with Lecrae. Um, His most recent album, phenomenal. But some of the folks he's pointed to that are on this list have been so impactful and amazing. And so Lecrae, Marty Solomon, and Baymod Discipleship Peter Enns, Rabbi David Foreman, Rabbi Michael Harvey. He's got a phenomenal book called Let's Talk, A Rabbi's Conversations with Christians. It is challenging. It will, it will cause you to confront certain things, and it will open your eyes to, to some of the truth and history that's happened within Scripture. Rachel Held Evans, N.T. Wright, David P. Gushy, of course, Zach Lambert, who I've mentioned, a guy, uh, guy on Twitter named Kevin M. Young. He's out of Florida with a church called Christ Table. He also has a podcast called, called Jack Theology. Uh, a pastor, Trey Ferguson, he's involved with a podcast, I believe, a People's Theology, or uh, maybe it's th- Three Black podcast. It won't take me but a moment to find out, though. So, Trey Ferguson, yep, Three Black Men podcast. Um, Pastor Trey 5 on Twitter. And again, I'm going to put all of these links in the show notes, but these, these folks have been incredibly helpful in, in their voices that are out there in their stance, in their understanding, in their in their education and knowledge. And so if you are in an evangelical space and you're asking questions, or maybe you're in a space that you can't ask questions, maybe you're in a church that frowns upon questions. Well, know that the Bible doesn't. The Bible invites us to wrestle with the ancient and ambiguous and diverse texts that make up the Bible. If you have this sense of why do we feel like we have all of this figured out as 21st century Christians when Scripture was never intended to be about us and really never intended for us, Well, if you're if you're wrestling with that, you're on the right track. What I have found from a lot of folks is 
is they go back to the early church, the first couple centuries within the church, and they kind of grow from there. A lot of tr- a lot of folks end up in mainline Protestant traditions that will have more of a liturgical style. But this this process, it's difficult. I'll be honest, it isn't easy. One of the biggest things is is confronting stuff that you thought you knew, thought you had it all figured out, to realize, I don't know as much as I thought I did. And if that's where you're at, if, if you're realizing that you don't know as much as you thought you did, welcome. You know, there's a lot of us out here. One of us may have cookies. But it's important that you continue this process. Because on the other side of deconstruction is reconstruction. And and, and I'm kind of doing both at the same time. It might be a little haphazardly, but it's my process. And what you go through and what you do is going to be different than what I do. So, if you're in an evangelical space, and you feel like you're on the verge of deconstructing, and you're afraid because you'll be alone, hey, reach out to me. I am at Petrol Head Jones on Twitter, P E T R O L H E A D J O N E S. Reach out to me with any question that you might have. You're not alone. No matter where you where you are on your deconstruction journey, there are all kinds of people out there who are in it with who who are going through it as well. So, one, I want you to know that you're not alone. Two, I want you to know that the work you're doing is worth it. It is worth realizing that it's not all about evangelicalism. It should be all about Jesus. Now, I hope that that phrase, it's all about Jesus, doesn't trigger you in some way because I know it's the phrase of a predominant pastor who is very vocal and very hurtful and very arrogant. But the spirit of really pointing back to Jesus is what I want to capture. First, I'm starting with the Old Testament. I'm going through the Old Testament through with rabbinic eyes, learning wisdom and critical thinking, but there's a lot I have to de- I have to decompartmentalize and a lot that I have to deconstruct. My idea of gender, black theology, feminist theology. I will say that over the past few months, becoming more, actually the past year, becoming more egalitarian, becoming more affirming over the past couple years, becoming LGBTQ affirming, by removing the complexity of when someone asks, what does it take to be a Christian, and putting, pointing them instead, what does it take to accept Jesus, pointing them to, to John 3, instead of some convoluted magical prayer, but just saying it takes belief and it takes following. It's that simple. And that following is the biggest thing. That following is feeding the hungry. It's clothing the naked. It's sheltering the homeless. It's caring for widows and orphans. It's loving our neighbor as ourself. It's not about throwing and pushing Scripture down people's throats. It is about it is a it is liberation in saying your identity isn't tied up in all of the labels that you give. It's tied up in your Creator. Your identity isn't found in all of the adjectives that we assign ourselves or that maybe people have assigned us. 
that we can be wholly unique individuals. And that's amazing. And just because who you love and how you see yourself may be different than what our quote-unquote culture would want us to see and feel, that doesn't make you an abomination. That makes you wonderfully and beautifully created in the image of God. And so if you were on this, this path of deconstruction, I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to hear what you've learned and maybe, you know, if you're willing to talk about it, your hurt, your growth, something you've learned because none of us should stop learning. Every single person who may listen to this podcast and really every person who won't listen to this podcast, we all should never stop learning. The first thing I think we all need to learn is that the Bible shouldn't be idolized. It is a resource given as an introduction to the conversation of who God is and how we are to interact with His creation and Him. It isn't a science book. It isn't a history book. And there's far more, far more contradictions than we'd really like to admit. And so I want to leave you with this last little anecdote, this last little analogy, and then I'll wrap this up. For me, deconstruction is that process of refinement that I'm sure all of us have heard in an evangelical space. Deconstruction is the process of putting everything into a forge or a smelter, boiling it down to the purest form and removing all of the garbage that we have added somewhere along the way. It is about getting to the true heart and intent of the words that comprise what we call the Bible. So y'all, I hope that this was a far more succinct, even though it wasn't, it's nearly as long, but I hope it's a far easier version to follow than the previous one. This is one that I, this episode I feel a whole lot better about, but I'm going to leave the original up. So because there was stuff in there, I didn't say in this one. So listen to both. You can follow me on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, Spotify, and I'm trying to get set up on Pocket Cast. I'm going to link all kinds of folks in the show notes, so check out those resources. They're phenomenal. There's a lot of reading, but it's really, really, really worth it. So, y'all, thank you so much. Have a great day, and remember, we are ordinary people trying to live extraordinary lives. And until next time, bye-bye.